1: to create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Irene Pramod, a host on this channel, and today I'll be in conversation with Professor Maria-José Dabru author of the riveting new work, The Charismatic Gymnasium, Breath, Media, and Religious Revivalism, which was published by Duke University Press earlier this year in February, 2021. Maria Jose W is Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Columbia University. She received her PhD in Anthropology from the University of Amsterdam in 2009. Her work crosscuts a number of anthropological and philosophical debates about temporality, personhood, materiality, political governance, and the human senses and the technological extensions in the lusophone world. Her prolific work can be found in a number of journals, including Current Anthropology, Critical Inquiry, Anthropological Theory, Social Text, and Current Anthropology. Maria Jose, it's, it's wonderful to have you here on the New Books Network, and I'm excited to, um, to get to speak with you about your book today.
2: Um, Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for this invitation. I'm excited uh, too and looking forward for this conversation.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So before we delve into your book and all the richness of the conceptual and empirical material that it brings out, I wonder if we could first get to know you a little more. Um, So would you mind telling us just a few words about your personal background and what led you to become an anthropologist working on religion and politics in contemporary Brazil.
2: Okay, so um, you know, paths that lead one to to a place uh, are, as we know, never linear. But uh, let's see. Uh, as a child, my my mother immigrated to Brazil. I I must have been like five, Uh, she immigrated to Rio Lengo, a suburban town not far from Rio de Janeiro. She was joining her two brothers who migrated clandestinely to Brazil during the 1960s, uh, escaping the stricken uh, poverty endured under the Salazar years in Portugal. And this was particularly so in the rural parts of the country where my mother's family came from. And my mother took on several jobs in Rio de Janeiro. But for a number of reasons, she was unable to adapt. And so she decided to move back to Portugal after a year. But something broke in her that year. And so dispirited she was that uh, as a single mother, she received advice to have me enter a foster home run by nuns. And so I ended up staying there eight years. And I have no doubt that this experience um, as a young child uh, would influence my interest in the in the topic of religion and politics. And as I later became a student of anthropology, uh, I thought you know Brazil uh, was my how to say my great bio otherwise. You know, like after all, had my mother not come to Portugal, Brazil would would have been my home and perhaps my citizenship. And so at the same time, Brazil would be more like a diagonal form to engage with the topic of of religion and its political ramifications uh, to a colonial setting uh, within the Lusophone world. So I think this, you know, very early on experience really shaped the kind of path I would later, you know, uh, choose uh, to take.
0: Right, right. And and I suppose a related question, um, a very related question would be how you came to write this particular book that we'll be discussing today, The Charismatic Gymnasium, and how its central ideas Um, about materiality, about movement, media, bodily infrastructures, how these, um, both the empirical and conceptual sort of um, framework of the book, how that came to develop over time, particularly I think over the many years that um, this book has kind of been developing um, and being researched and written
2: up. Right, so yeah, it has been a long journey. Um, With many twists and turns. Um, So let's see. So, when I first went to Sao Paulo um, in 2000, so 2000, like many other researchers who were interested in studying Christianity and colonialism, you know, I wanted to study liberation theology. So, those were like the cool ones to study. And so my project was to study how progressive Catholics worked with uh, artists and activists in producing and distributing videos that would help various subaltern groups like uh, Movimento Sem Terra, the MST or the Peasant Landless Movement or indigenous groups and Afro communities in using video technology as a form of organization and, and uh, pedagogy, in claiming for basic rights such as land, housing, water, and so on. And so, when I started my PhD at University of Amsterdam, I went to these. Uh, uh, you know, when when I during that visit to São Paulo in 2000. I went to this main headquarters where this video uh, for this video association, which was uh, called Asociación uh, Video Popular, uh, located in the center of uh, São Paulo city. But when I and when I got to this association, I I met this extraordinary woman, uh, an activist who maintained the archive on a voluntary basis, and. You know, we spoke, like, for two hours. It's, uh, it's a long conversation. And I remember that the place was immersed in this deep melancholy. And so in our conversation, she conveyed to me how the video movement was uh, that I was wanting to research was practically dead, how it had its heydays in the 80s and 90s, uh, but more or less since the 1990s, it had little to no activity. People had moved on to other things. Uh, TV, it's like TV had killed uh, the video star, you know. So at some point, I, I asked her, so what is it, the thing people go for nowadays? And to my great surprise, she said, Nowadays people go for the aerobics of Jesus. And I said, I beg your pardon. <laughs> so she then pointed me on the map where I should go if I were to witness these uh, Catholic masses come aerobics as these new phenomena in town. And so, sure enough, next Saturday I went to Santa Maro in the southeast of Sao Paulo, to witness such masses. And I I was absolutely startled. It was a large, uh, large, large industrial hangar with open doors, open gates, uh, thousands of people singing and dancing in sync, in a mass choreography, a very energetic priest on stage with a whistle, rather than, you know, like a crucifix uh, around his neck. Like if you were more like a coach in a gym, really, and not a priest, wearing sneakers and telling people to feel their pulses, their hearts. And last but not least, <laughs> throwing buckets of water from the stage to refresh the, the, the sweaty commune uh, with the supposedly blessed water. And this priest was uh, Padre Marcelo Rossi, a former bodybuilder turned Catholic priest uh, who was really blasting the old uh, Catholic establishment in the country. Also on stage, there were TV cameras, especially TV Globo, which is traditionally Brazil's most important media network. Um, but also uh, uh, famous celebrities from Brazil's popular culture, among which Xuxa, you know, any Brazilian will know what who Xuxa is, a sex symbol slash children's godmother TV host, as well as other stars like Roberto Carlos, also a very well-known singer of, of romantic songs, uh, who had become a devoted Catholic. And in the 19s, in fact, Padre Marcelo, Rossi, and Shusha became a really tight duet, performing together mass shows, staging football stadiums and parks. You know, if you Google Padre uh, Marcelo and Shusha, you will see what I mean. They were like the king and queen of the local MTV. The songs and the choreographies of Padre Marcelo um, were playing on mainstream discotheques and techno remixes of his hits were made uh, as scale versions of his popularly branded aerobics of Jesus and so on and so on. You know, he paraded his own carnival of Jesus. You know, he was really uh, kind of ubiquitous and, and no doubt the biggest celebrity in Brazil's popular culture as Brazil moves towards the millennium, at the turn of the millennium. Anyhow, that day in October 2001, when I went to Santa Maro, I was able to see what this new expression of Catholicism in Brazil uh, and at the turn of the millennium uh, was like. And so I began to think, what is going on? What happened? One was familiar with religions, uh, that adopted the more theatrical and emotive approach, but not really in the Catholic Church, not at least in its modern expression. Of course, you know, popular Catholicism also has very much this emotional uh, element, but not in its modern expressions, and certainly not, you know, in the kind of progressive Catholicism that you would see in Brazil and other parts of Latin America, um, tightened as it was, you know, to social political agendas, to the reality of the oppressed, to the metaphysics of meaning, the power of language to signify and, and bring social transformation. But inside the santuario rosario bizantino, which is how the place, this this hangar where the aerobics of Jesus was happening, a whole new reality was unfolding and are very different parameters and logics, which, like you identify in your question, involved a very different articulation between materiality, motion, media technologies, and the body. So the aerobics of Jesus uh, entailed a whole new uh, respiratory program that literally wanted to work out, you know, It wanted to work out the corpus ecclesia. It wanted to work out the articulations of the church. And the idea that its corpus ecclesia, its body, had become too, uh, you know, too stagnant, too rigid. And Father Marcelo, you know, Father Marcelo would even say, talk of the Catholic Church uh, as obese, and so, with such proposition and orientations, Brazil's Catholic Church was, at that point in time, turn, as if turning its entire edifice upside down, you know, moving away from what had been a kind of traditional earthbound theology you know, that had perhaps its, you know, its maximum expression in liberation theology, which was a very earthbound, you know, even in its logics of the promised land, its dedication to the peasant landless movement, but also on a metaphysical level, its, its fixations on ideology, on referential meaning. So very much in this kind of earthbound logics into an airbound theology, through the charismatic movement. So it's very interesting how, in a way, the the disputes within Catholicism in Brazil could be actually rendered through, you know, the elements of, of like, a a tension between earth and air. And, And it's very interesting to think, like, how this influences a certain... Epistem, right? Between, on the one hand, earthbound logics and, on the other hand, airbound logics. And so, to study the implications of this major shift from earthbound theology to airbound theology was, in essence, the stimulus behind what would become the Charismatic Gymnasium.
0: Oh, that is absolutely fascinating. And you've already touched on so many of the um, of the themes that we'll be getting into in more detail. And um, now that you've already started with some of this historical overview, I wonder if we could get into it a bit more, because you start your book. Um, and so if I had to Um, So in the book itself, you focus on Brazil's Catholic charismatic renewal, as you mentioned, and it's this movement, as you say, that's within Brazilian Catholicism that has its roots in the Guerra Santa or the Holy War of 1995, and that's your starting point in some ways of the book, and you remind us throughout the book in many junctures that these Catholic charismatics today, they tread this medial but shifty terrain between mainstream evangelicalism And Catholicism, and there is what you've what you've called, um, and I think this comes up first in the introduction, where you call it a theology of compromise that emerges as Catholic Charismatics. They draw consciously on Byzantine strains of Orthodox Eastern Christianity to reformulate and remold their theologies in ways that are still institutionally legible within Catholicism, and it's not rupturing the institutional itself, which uh, I I found just fascinating. And um, there are also, as you note, distinct temporal movements between ancient Byzantine, Catholic, and more recent Pentecostal charismatic histories and traditions that are both within, that are endemic, sort of within Brazil at the turn of the millennium, but also without Brazil outside of it. And in light of these elastic temporalities that you describe your interlocutors as dis- as embodying and stretching across time-space, could you tell us in a, perhaps a bit more detail how the Gera Santa of 1995, how that set the Catholic charismatics in motion and why oscillating between these distinct temporalities of the Byzantine Catholic and Pentecostal slash charismatic Um, temporalities and their theological genealogies, why oscillating across these different temporalities, really, why it matters to Catholic charismatics in the neoliberal present and at the turn of the millennium?
2: Great question, really, and exactly right. Um, I guess the essential idea here is how what seemed like a limit actually was worked into a potential. So what, let's see, what do I mean by that? This idea is at once complex and simple. So this, you know, this turning of limits into a potential is at once complex and simple. Complex because of all the political and religious forces that were shaping the field at that particular time and space in the mid-90s. And yet, simple in that precisely because of all the complexity, the higher the necessity was to conjure a flexible theology capable of absorbing and reducing reducing such complexity into some universalistic mode. You know, it's it's orthodox, orthodox Catholicism, Catholicism as a whole, like katolos means holos, right? But orthodox Catholicism in particular feels best energized by complexity. And so the charismatic movement, the charismatic renewal movement, saw that clearly. And when young, energetic, good-looking, and lover of sports, Padre Marcelo, appears in the horizon uh, around that time of Guerra Santa in 1995, the call for a flexible theology had found its gymnasium right in the physical as well as metaphysical senses. And the aerobics of Jesus is the actualization of that call and off he went. Now let us look closer to this context of Guerra Santa, which with which the book starts. The mid nineteen nineties were ripe for for a change. Like the military dictatorship was now in the past; it had ended in eighty five, uh, at least apparently. I mean, as we see now with Bolsonaro, elements from the military years were merely dormant. They were put on hold into some kind of a subterranean vault awaiting its return. Uh, uh, but in the 1990s, uh, Brazil was torn by, by scandal with the impeachment of Collor de Mello, President Collor de Mello Uh, but also the scandals within Pentecostal churches of corruption and money laundering, particularly under the dominion of uh, Pastor Edir Macedo, who is the founder of the Universal Church there and owner of uh, TV Record. Uh, So the rise in popularity of this TV Record, uh, owned by uh, Edir Macedo, so an evangelical-owned media network, uh, triggered Brazil's main TV network, um, which is TV Records, to become the channel representing Catholicism. In a way, enacting the old colonial metonymic logic that to represent Catholicism was to speak for the nation as a whole. In other words, because TV Record uh, comes into, into being uh, under Edir Macedo, a Pentecostal evangelical church, uh, and starts to compete with TV uh, Globo. The TV Globo, you know, opted to speak on behalf of the Catholic Church as though speaking on behalf of the nation in order to make that conflation between Catholicism and Brazil. And so... uh, On the national holiday of Aparecida, so of of this Catholic, precisely this Catholic holiday that uh, has a national holiday where that conflation between nation and Catholicism is, you know, uh, perhaps best expressed, um, an evangelical pastor, took a big replica of this nation's patron saint to the studios of TV Record and on live transmission went on ridiculing the statue and those who show devotion to the saint. And so this scene was the kickoff to what would become Brazil's Guerra Santa. And so now a great deal has been written about this, uh, this moment as an expression of blasphemy its legal and political implication in terms of religious diversity and so on. But what interested me was less those aspects, uh, important as they are, but I was more intrigued by the operational logics that this moment inaugurated in terms of how to think the image in times of electronic media. And, mm -hmm, And particularly for the Catholic charismatic movement, a movement that is Catholic and yet wants to adopt methodologies of televangelism. The interesting uh, thing is that rather than seeing a problem in Guerra Santa, charismatics saw in distinction between, you know, as it were, mainstream Catholicism and Pentecostalism, an opportunity, the opportunity. As a Catholic, Pentecostal movement, you know, precisely because it had these two dimensions as a movement, charismatics were able to precisely enter that rift opened up by the war happening, you know, between mainstream Catholicism and Pentecostalism. And then, you know, it's, as it were, avatars in the form of TV Global and TV Record. Right? So this was a war by proxy, you know, was a war between two uh, you know, within inter-Catholicism between these uh, uh, Protestant Pentecostals and mainstream Catholicism that was then rearticulated in terms of a war between two media, major media networks. And there in that gap, precisely, charismatics come to implement and edify its own theology, what I call this theology of the compromise, including a theology of the image and the icon. And now this is the extraordinary thing. Where in tradition are they going to find this institutional backing to this compromise between, as it were, Catholicism and Pentecostalism in the Byzantine tradition and in the teachings of the Eastern Orthodox Church? So the, that rift, in a way, that cut or wound that it's there in in itself opens etiological grounds, right, for um, the 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 you know the re-flourishing of a much older tradition you know that goes back you know at least to uh, the eighth and the ninth century, uh, which is the Byzantine uh, tradition and the elasticity that it's also there the temporal elasticity like you you, you mentioned, it's an extraordinary operation. It's indeed a stretch, an elastic wonder. That it's happening. And as you might know, the Byzantine is itself the expression of a rift between, between iconophiles, the image lovers, and the iconoclasts, the image uh, destroyers in the 8th and 9th century. And 9th century. You know, uh, an argument that uh, uh, author marie José Manzahin makes wonderfully in her book uh, published in 2005, which is The, the Origins of the Byzantine Imaginary. Where she says that the Byzantine uh, gives face to precisely that compromise between the icon destroyers and the icon lovers, as she, you know, as she argues in that book, Byzantine icons are present but always through some kind of withdrawal, right? It's an operation that theologically is known as kenosis, right? That then charismatics um, would as compatible, this is the extraordinary thing, they would see as compatible that kenosis with the very uh, operations of uh, of television making in its coming of the passing of images, right? Where each image in the passing of images is this, this tension between appearing and disappearing, right? Cut by cut. And so what you have here is this... Um, interesting tying of kenosis and kinesis uh, that converges nicely on TV in this moment that the charismatic renewal is, uh, you know, about to appear uh, in in Brazil in a more uh, uh, public form. Because let me tell you that uh, until 1993, which is precisely the year that the the CNBB, which is the national organ of the Catholic Church in Brazil, recognizes, officially recognizes the charismatic movement uh, in Brazil, even though charismatics have been in Brazil since at least 1969, which is the time, you know, that... uh, Two priests, uh, American priests, imported the movement to, uh, you know, the, the with to the st- within the state of São Paulo, around the region of uh, the, uh, region uh, called Campinas, which is, you know, in within the state of São Paulo. But so only in 1993, the, the charismatic movement gets this recognition by the official Catholic Church. So the Holy War is in nineteen ninety five. So charismatics feel that moment. You know that that there's the 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 conditions are there for for the charismatic movement to kind of uh, give you know the leap as it were. Um, um, and so um, uh, let me see. Um, so this question of how charismatics turn a limit into, into a potential is, is interesting because it, in fact, connects even with that moment uh, that charismatics come to Brazil and precisely are not recognized by the, the local establishment. And they live, as it were, in a kind of situation of marginality, in the periphery of Sao Paulo, where liberation theology is also extremely strong. But what do do they do? They turn precisely those limits, that status of marginality, into an asset, because being marginal also allowed them, especially in those early days, to create this identification with uh, the apostolic community, which was likewise marginalized. And to, so they use that status of marginality to kind of, uh, you know, instill this idea of, of, uh, of an authentic second Pentecost, right? And, and to, still today, charismatics speak with great nostalgia for those days when they were repressed and marginalized because this fire of Pentecost was all the more inflamed. And so, like I was saying, after Guerra Santa, charismatics found the grounds to spring up, you know, because at the same time, they you know, they were, after using mass media technology, they wanted to reach the larger masses. So that discourse of being marginal was also in tension with that other desire to actually reach the masses and to really transform Catholicism uh, in, in Brazil. Now, at the same time, also as you mentioned, the mid-90s is also a moment of restructuring the, the economy towards these more neoliberal standards and so ideas of you know in, in economic terms ideas of the third way that were being proposed by elsewhere by under Thatcher and Blair in you know in um, and and then Reagan as well were being adopted to Brazil's own political uh, scaffoldings. Particularly under President Fernando Henrique uh, Cardoso, uh, and so charismatics uh, were also thinking. Look, look, we also have this third way, you know, in 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 religion, and this third way, uh, you know, uh, that econom- uh, you can speak in, in terms of economic terms of the third way. This third way in in religion, in in our theological terms, is the third way of the Holy Spirit. And so the the third of the Trinity. So so they felt like, you know, as as Egel would call, the spirit of times was really there for them, you know. The third way that is this spirit is uh, of pneuma, the Greek term for breath, air, spirit. And so suddenly the logics and semantics proper to neoliberalism could work in operational solidarity, really, with breeding, with pneuma, bring on flexibility, bring on balanced transactions between in and out, bring on porous bodies, bring on uh, media technologies that allow you to punctuate uh, the beating of the heart, bring on global flows.
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
0: Right. And you have segued so beautifully to my next uh, question, which is precisely about um, the role of pneuma and understandings of this breath, air, spirit um, sort of combination in this term, the Greek term pneuma, how that is understood and um embodied among the Catholic Charismatics. And you tell us, um, because I suppose in the first and second chapters, you take us through the Pauline inheritances of the Greek pneuma in Catholic Charismatic understandings of the Holy Spirit as this mighty rushing wind, um, this third person in the Trinity, as you mentioned. And you tease out the pneumatic linkages between breathing, moving bodies, and the preternatural interventions of the Holy Spirit that give the church community breath. And I remember one of your interlocutors um, in chapter one, uh, they said that the Holy Spirit is what makes our church community come alive. Uh, And the communicative utterances of the members in this community, um, and in this case, the Kansao Nova community, you suggest that these utterances are constitutive of the breath acts and the connective technologies of the Holy Spirit. And you tell us that this leads us to a view of the community as communication itself. It's not a community that communicates, but simply communicates, but it's communication itself. But at the same time, you describe this embodied pneuma, this embodied spirit breath um, in relation to the neoliberal logics of governance, because just as the Holy Spirit moves and blows wherever it will, so too does the neoliberal market and those entangled in it, given the heavy uncertainties about the future. And so... Could you tell us a bit more about the pneumatic workings of what you call a community as communication and its neoliberal underpinnings and logics? Um, and also, um, perhaps if you if you uh, think this might be related, how we can understand questions of internal difference and hierarchy within this community as communication?
2: Yes, another great question. Um, there's a lot going on here. Um, so, <laughs> let's see. So, this idea of community as communication. Um, so, this question points us to, uh, like you mentioned, the central role of pneuma in um, in traversing domains between bodies, media, space, and objects, such that you can never say uh, which one comes before the other. Right? It's this idea of, that there's a relational continuum connecting all these elements. That is to say, in so much that pneuma, as breath, air, spirit, circulates between those domains, each and every aspect is ideally co-implicated in the other. That's why for uh, an anointed charismatic, uh, it will not make sense to say that people communicate, for this would imply a subject that is detached from the action it performs. Rather, the subject is uh, its act, in the sense that to act on something is always also being acted upon. So you see, it's like the, all these elements are implicated uh, in each other, and so it's never subjects just doing certain actions, you know, a subject that is in space. No, it's the subject that becomes spatialized, right, and the space that becomes subjectified, as it were. Hence. Uh, the insistence in the case of Cansonova on these apostolic foundations of the media community, as I described in the chapter one in the book. Uh, the legend according to which, uh, when uh, in 1978 uh, the founder of Cansonova, Father Jonas Zabib, asked prophetically who, uh, you know, to uh, a group of people who were uh, gathered to listen to his sermons. He asked, "Who would be willing to leave everything behind and uh, follow uh, him to fulfill a call in his heart and lungs?" And exactly twelve people rose up to the occasion. For quote unquote, they were filled with this, with pneuma, with the spirit. Now these evangelists or communicators were not simply channels through which messages will pass, but they would see their own bodies as messages, as like anointed for infrastructures by which, um, through, by which uh, one could see, one was supposed to see through uh, their sanctity. So it's this idea of the anointed body Right, that is allows you to see through, and that's in a sense what charisma does. And if charismatics are very explicit and stubborn about this idea, right, and this is part of the connects to your question of hierarchy uh, that you know you asked it at the, at the end of your question, you know they, they they told me time and again that where charismatics see through the 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 Catholic Church that is to say priests who have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit see. And, and this is an epistemological division that is there, right? Because seeing through, to be charismatic, means to experience the, the spirit. But to see is to know. It means you read your books, you know, you took your degree but you may have not experienced the Holy Spirit. So you will see, that is to say, you who studied, who's a priest, who read your theological books, you will. You might see things, but you yourself uh, will not uh, be uh, seen through, right? You will not be anointed, you will not be charismatic. So it's very... You know the tensions that were there is like charismatic lay people who have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit were telling priests. You know, look, you you, you may know all these things. You may be a priest, but you have not been uh, baptized in the Holy Spirit, right? So there were strong tensions there. And so, and so this tension between uh, seeing through, which in a way seeing through is something more like oral because it's about this idea of porosity. It's like, like sound that crosses a wall, right? Seeing does not cross walls, but, but sound does. So seeing through is actually something more audio than, than visual, in fact. And, and so you have these very interesting tensions going on here that are epistemological, uh, between knowledge uh, versus experience, between Seeing versus seeing through, uh, and between institution uh, versus uh, charisma. And so this connects, I think, uh, to ideas of neoliberalism and in various forms, one of which pertains to how neoliberal logics uh, to favor. Uh, certain mechanisms of uh, fluidity that, for example, conflate, um, you know, domains that modernity, logics of modernity wanted to keep apart with its, you know, compartmentalizations and pocketed circumscriptions, such as difference between background and foreground, difference between subject and object, between medium and message, for charismatics, rather, the, the trick is how to think uh, those the, uh, you know dichotomies in new forms, and you know to 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 precisely use uh, those uh, dichotomies that were once there to uh, hijack certain criticisms and certain. Logics that used to be associated with more left wing critical discourse and to uh, use it for its own agenda and its own program as a kind of political uh, uh, assemblage I think uh, this is something that actually the the left uh in term, in political terms uh uh, needs to understand, right? How the, the right is being so good at kind of manipulating certain logics that that the left thought was the logics they had to criticize and how the right has been in a way leapfrog, leapfrogging on the back of certain critiques used by the left. Um, or I, if not, I think the left will be, you know, remain in that kind of melancholy that I, I found when I first went to this headquarters um of the video popular movement I mentioned before,
0: right, and I think we'll be we'll also be returning to the whole media technologies thing in very, very shortly, but if we had to shift gear a little bit, which I think also relates to what you've been saying so far about the community as communication, but another aspect that you tease out is the the question of sin. Uh, because you explore how sin, particularly addictive addiction and sexual sin, how that is circ- circulated and managed within the human body, um, within this community, within the human at the level of the human body, via, via Catholic charismatic technologies of self and collective spirit worship. And you tell us that confession practices in particular, they work to develop a kind of immunity or bodily resistance to sin by circulating sin in the body instead of getting rid of sin altogether. And um, you tell us that what what the individual believer wants to overcome in in some way, that is sin, that very object is made explicit it's not it's not done away with there it there isn't an attempt to get rid of it so to speak but it's it's passed consciously through the body with the self maintaining control over sin and its presence and movement in the body a presence that you can't just get rid of uh, for your interlocutors but uh and it's it's and i suppose this self-maintaining control over sin in the body is in some ways also opposed to sin controlling the impulses of the body. Um, And you describe the circulation of sin in the body as an immunological paradox of protection. And this is something I was very intrigued by. And I was wondering if you could tease that out a little more for us. And also, you know, within this broader community as as communication. I was also interested in the kind of confessional self that emerges when these, when this management of sin is taking place, and when sin is made to circulate at the level of the human body, and what this kind of confessional self, if we had to juxtapose it with the pneumatic workings of the Holy Spirit in the community at large, what might we understand about the individual and the human body with regard to the wider social and community framework the individual is
2: embedded in? Mm -hmm. So, this question you pose about the relation between scene and immunity is extremely important to me. And I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about it lately, also in the context of uh, Bolsonaro as president of Brazil. Uh, if you allow me to, you know, look how peculiar, how peculiar that Bolsonaro, uh, and I, I mean, I'll, I'll make my, my connection here, but look how peculiar that Bolsonaro values his enemies more than his friends. How he rather nurture foe than friend. Why is that? Uh, because this is how he can say, I would love to govern, but I'm surrounded by enemies. They don't let me govern. In that way, he formulates the obstacle that in effect is the precondition to his governance or non-governance thereof. Right? It's precisely because he doesn't know how to govern, that he, he has to uh, surround himself by obstacles so we can... Uh, you know, project that uh, incapacity uh, to, to his enemies, right? So this agonistic form of incarnating a form of sovereignty is very different from a classic Hobbesian logics of sovereignty where the enemy, you know, had to be kept outside and away from uh, the body community, sovereign entity, right? So, in other words, if the classic relation between, you know, immunity and community was one of staving off the enemy, and here we can already call it sin, outside the body come territory proper, what happens now in a process where good and bad, virtue and sin face each other in the same camp? And yet... They face each other in the same camp, but only to proceed to create a kind of a kind of hollowing middle that absorbs extremities in the very act of soliciting this. So the logic is in denying the reality it actually presupposes. Like as a kind of a torsion or elasticity, so torsion. So the operation is more like uh, you know twisting camps and into a torsion, like bringing extremes into a, a relation of of a certain torsion, uh, rather than actually a logic of mutual exclusion. Thus, similarly, it seems to me that charismatics you know, they do not really get rid of sin, right? Unlike in the confessional, modern confessional, you go to the confessional to, you know, uh, get rid of uh, sins and peccadillos. but in fact use it as part of the spiritual gymnastics, it, you know, as such. So, So this idea of an immunological paradox of protection connects... You know, to that, to this uh, odd torsion of opposite camps. It's like evil must be fought at its own game. You see, this idea of let me see if I explain this even better of of extremes, you know, that bend into a kind of middle and set to do this kind of torsion. So these. Kind of topological uh, operation, in fact connects to what I, via Karl Schmitt, called the complexio oppositorium. That is, the complexio oppositorium is the way by which extremes and oppositions draw on each other. It is strange because it sounds like we're talking about some kind of dialectical thinking you know, of teases and teases that would then lead to a, a third. But the way extremes meet in the complex oppositorial is not meant as a way to transcend into a, a third, but rather so as to implode the terms of the relation of opposites into that compromising we were talking before. So, in other words, it's not about a, a either-or, but more like a, a both-and. It will be this that, as well as that. It will be Catholic as well as uh, Pentecostal. And so, it, for example, right? So, it connects to what we were talking before as that theology of compromise that draws on complexity and yet proceeds to hollow it. Now, the question is... What will happen to this body that incorporates the conditions of its own hallowing or its own, you know, like in a misabim, abim Padre eh? um, Marcelo surely went from one extreme to the next, so he oscillated uh, a lot. Uh, almost in mimetic sympathy with the operations of breathing, right? Which also is from when extreme, like from, even if you think of inhaling, exhaling, in and out, is like this oscillation between two kinds of extremes, um, you know. Um, so, but but also, you know, throughout his career, since he, you know, he became into popularity, particularly, in, you know, after 95, uh First, he was all muscles, then he went extremely fat, he became very obese himself, and then he lost an incredible amount of weight to the point of being unable to speak. I mean, there's videos of him after he did this crazy diet, you know, that he, he was talking and he needed subtitles so we could understand what he was saying because he simply had no air in, in his body. Um, in terms of Cancer nova community, you know, I, it embraced Bolsonaro, who became president, but Bolsonaro himself is, uh, I mean, and when I say embrace Bolsonaro, they literally invited him when Bolsonaro was elected president and they invited him to come to Casanova and told Bolsonaro he has, you know, been elected uh, by God himself. Um But Bolsonaro, too, is running out of breath. Uh, And now he even has the hiccups as a result of his, you know, time and again serially revisited gut at the operation table due to the stabbing that preceded and perhaps led to his election in late 2019. And so the hiccups even, I I want to write about these hiccups of the the sovereign, you know, the sovereign with hiccups, in a way is this latest manifestation of a fissured body and perhaps uh, most dramatic expression of what I call this immunological paradox of protection when it comes to think sovereignty. Um, elsewhere, I actually describe this as part of connecting uh, sovereignty, the sovereign and the idea of, of this uh, decision uh, through which classic political theology defines sovereignty, right? The sovereign is you who decides on the state of exception uh not as decision but actually as incision so a series of rhythmic cuts uh typical of an organism uh that embodies the conditions uh of of its own destruction uh so it's it's basically this uh idea of you know a strange form of of uh immunity that is very, you know, very much um, in touch and willing to uh, be in a kind of contact contact with the very conditions that will um, threaten it, you know. And in the case of Bolsonaro, uh, perhaps even lead to its own extinction, hence some people you know, are now talking of the Bolsonaro as as a kind of suicidal state, to use the expression by Paul Virilio, right? That gradually is kind of uh, building his own um, his own grave. But in the case of the charismatics, it's just really part of a, a dynamics where sin in, in, in a way is, is that which allows the community to be always in touch with the very thing that they need to transcend in that very moment of of overcoming sin, you know, they also need to make sin manifest. And that's the pump that makes sin circulate, you know. So it becomes actually what, in a way, glues the community in that moment of performance.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for that. that that's, I suppose it, it teases yeah. out the kind of productive tension almost that's, mm. that's there between these... Um, Opposing forces of some right. kind within within the body itself, right?
2: Um, yeah, and it's a kind of you know, it's 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 uh, it's like a standstill, but without the dialectics, you know. There's mm-hmm. the dialectics at the standstill, but it, it's it's these yeah these. Very peculiar form of uh, bringing things into attention without this resulting in a kind of sublimation into a third, but actually, yeah. you know, allowing this agonistic project, a uh, process to, to be the space, you know, for a kind of torsion for the exercising of that elastic muscle mm-hmm. that is there, right, uh, as much as you can.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And if we had to revisit the question of sovereignty that you brought up um, a few minutes ago, um, I, I wonder if we can do that within the context of um, one very intriguing and evocative chapter um, somewhere mm-hmm. in the middle of your book about the ceremonial Holy Eucharist uh, and its media and its media televisation in the kansoa Nova community. And, um, because in that chapter, you argue that by transposing the Eucharist from mainstream Catholicism to the, the Noah community in televised and mediatized form, the Catholic charismatics come to inhabit the institutional again in these tense, often paradoxical ways. Um, because new fields of sacred presence now emerge between the TV screen itself, the camera, and the live eucharist as viewers participate in its televised form and there is also a kind of reconfiguration of the divine presence and what divine what the divine really means uh, within this mediatized space and so i was wondering if you could also um tell us about how the media technologies involved in televising the eucharist how that crosscuts with the making of sacred power, sovereignty, and presence, and how these media technologies manipulate the lines between what is mundane and what is sacred in the
2: community. Ah, no, really another fabulous question. <laughs> so the question of the Holy Eucharist, it was, was, a fro- you know, was and is a fraught one among Catholic charismatics. Uh, particularly because traditionally, uh, as you may know so much about the, the mystery of the Eucharist in Catholic service uh, has to do with uh, involving the community in this mystery of presence. You know, we were talking before about me uh, being in this nunnery. And, you know, I can tell you that back in my childhood, um uh, in, when I was in this uh, nunnery in Oporto uh, I, had, I had a year so we, we had to work a lot do a lot of tasks there and I had a year that I was work, working by the main gate uh, I was a kind of a guardian of the whole place and it happened that whoever had that job also helped the, the nun responsible, um, uh, uh, so also helped the nun uh, that was uh, responsible for the gate. her her name was uh, Sister Kiteria, to make the the wafers, uh, the wafers the priest would then consecrate for the mass and i was absolutely thrilled that i was involved in the making off of the body of christ especially i was i would later witness it in church communion as this miracle of transubstantiation and so on and i was able to collect those wafers with some uh, defect into a small plastic bag and 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 the, the leftovers you know left in this pressing iron mold uh, owned by the nuns there and and then went on distributing it secretively among among the other girls, you know, often with exchange of favors and so on. And so I was very popular at this year, you know. And you you know you were told by the nuns that you ought not to shoe the body of of Christ no teeth involved. And instead, you had to bring it to the dome of your mouth and let it melt there and so on. But on those non-consecrated bits uh, I was able to collect, we could chew. And so you can imagine the, the libidinal catexis going on there, to say the least. But, you know, in charismatics at Cansonova, uh, I could see that they wanted to use mass media but without sacrificing that you know, intense sensorial experience you know, that is invested in the Holy, Holy Eucharist. And so what did they do? They thought of a form of montage, of staging the display of the Eucharist into a kind of visual chewing. That is uh, a form that would engage the audiences in a very potent way. You know, and of course, what was at stake here was, you know, uh, this idea of real presence. How can you combine and make com- make compatible this idea of real presence through the TV screen, right, via this technological medium? So what they did was they they zoomed in the TV cameras, uh, you know, like looking at the monstrance containing. Uh, the host, so as to technically cover the entire space of the waffle. And what, what one would see on TV screen was therefore this profuse whiteness. Right? But lest people think it's, it's a photo, you know, because the camera would basically stay there, on the right upper side of the TV screen, one would read the words live. Right? So it was this white screen there for a whole hour, and it had simply these words live. So people knew that it was not a photograph, but a film. In other words, that it was live, a live transmission. Right, This was very important. And so they would let this white live screens stay there for the whole hour during which people would contemplate and receive prophetic charismatic visions and so it was like an eventful non-event right it was lively but nothing was really apparently happening on the screen but the extraordinary thing is by showing nothing in particular, charismatics at Consonovo were precisely showing the possibilities of seeing as such. That is to say, instead of using that, the TV screen to show something, which is what televisions normally do, uh, that nothingness that was there, that kind of zero ground or or or, or you know desert that was, was there was the way by which people could partake in the making of the images themselves as they contemplated the screen. In other words, from from mere spectators of of TV, of what is given by TV, viewers themselves became the image producers. And so not only they were experiencing, therefore, some form of uh, real uh, presence in the form of these you know, the form they were being affected the, through the visions and prophecies and cures they receive as a form of, of you know, incarnated real presence, but also real time, right? Because of the, this idea that what was happening was on, on a, a live broadcast, you know, fulfilling the fantasy of liveliness and directness. And so what you have here is this uh, extraordinary Converging between Eucharists and TV logics into one and the same mystery. Now, you know, I I never come to explicitly deal with this politics of whiteness. Not here, not in later, you know, in other chapters such as chapter six, where I write about these white monoblock chairs. And yet whiteness is the color in ways that expose the white origins of this movement imported in the late 1960s, as I said, from the U.S., very much in contrast with uh, Black Pentecostalism, which someone like uh, Ashok Crowley uh, documents in his book Black Pentecostal Breath. And so uh, let me just say also for your last points, how the sacred and the mundane intermingle. It's interesting that for, charismat- for charismatics, um, much like uh, in the tradition of the Byzantine, there was never an incompatibility between those, between the sacred and the mundane. Actually, on the contrary, it is all about showing how spirit circulates, tying those domains, the sacred and the profane. charismatics for example are willing to talk about their techniques of montage as much as much as they are about the mystery they want to communicate through those very techniques. So it's never that RTD you know there is this opposition that you know others have made between the artificial and the natural right? Mm-hmm. Um, as a matter of fact, it, what is so interesting is that they, they will talk about how you know technology allows the supernatural, but in the sense of a natural more natural could not be a supernatural, the superlative for naturalness. So so it's very interesting, you know, that there is this supernatural and, the, and supernatural um, that is precisely uh, mediated. Although mediation is also a, a, a concept that I, I, I question a lot because it's not just that they use technology as a means of mediation, but they actually you know, use technology to hone something that was already there. right? Yes. So it's more like a, a modulation and that connects again with seeing through and sound. Modulation is a more sonic uh, perhaps you know closer to this idea of immediacy that they themselves want to um convey right mm-hmm.
0: right absolutely that is just that is just fascinating thank you so much again for for that and um oh there's so much there's so much that we could continue to tease out but if i have to sort of move on to uh, what i wanted to um address is to return to what you actually started off our um our conversation with when you brought up the aerobics of Jesus and how you know you were first introduced to that in your conversation with this woman that you had uh, met um and so this is largely in the second half of the book where you talk about this aerobics of Jesus which is um, the dynamic worship services of Padre Masalo Rossi um, media the media savvy priest who um, as you described earlier who first popularized the charismatic movement in Brazil and um, so in this in the in a couple of chapters in the second half of your book, you talk about how both in the human body form as the corporeal temple of the Holy Spirit and the concrete infrastructure of the Catholic sanctuary itself, Catholic charismatics, you tell us, are invested in building up and being built up as spiritual bodybuilders. And as aerobuses, And in song and prayer, the rhythmic modulation, again, as you've to return to what you know we've been discussing all this while this rhythmic modulation of breathing and the repetition of inhaling and exhaling, of moving between the inside and the outside, how all these processes of seemingly of seeming opposites, how they work together in community projects of building up. Um, and in this Catholic sanctuary that you describe, Me de Dios, that draws on the Byzantine icon of the Theotokos, the mother of God, you explore the semiotics of Byzantine iconography among the catholic charismatics and again um this goes back to uh, what you had brought up a few questions ago and you tell us that like the building up of the aerobic body the catholic sanctuary too is built up as a body for the icon and that and you tell us that the icon of the theotokos or the mother of god it's not simply circumscribed within the space of the sanctuary But instead, the icon of the Virgin Mary, it's incarnated as a kind of space-occupying physical being, to quote uh, quote a line from your your book, uh, which bridges charismatic aerobics and Byzantine metaphysics in the built environment of the Catholic sanctuary. And so I was wondering if you could... um, if we had to return to this aerobics of Jesus question that we started with, how this aerobics of Jesus, how it helps us understand questions of the territoriality of of icons and charismatic reconfigurations of space and time, and how the building up of the Catholic sanctuary, how this straddles these temporal worlds of Pentecostal charismatic religion and Byzantine orthodoxy and This the space-time dynamics what do you really make of all of it with regards to the icon
2: wow so again uh, your question uh, could take us in in different directions really Um, so I see the idea of bodybuilding uh, as a building up or of a building construction that is itself like a body in this case and you know theotokos and marian kind of body right so here i am you know playing with this idea of body and build body building and body and building right and again that you know that core implication we were talking about about before that, it's not just bodies in a building, right? But the body building, right? So this, this, um, and and again, you know, uh, here, I, you know, I, I can, I have to recognize this uh, influence um, uh, and inspiration from the work of Marie Jose Montaigne which has been enormously helpful to conceptualize uh, this idea of, of the icon as the administration of, of territory, right? As this oikonomia, right, that she talks about um, in such a powerful way. Uh, so in terms of spatiality, indeed, Monzain, uh makes this important distinction, which I think is relevant to to your question, which is the distinction between um, what she calls perigrafé and graphe, when she's talking about the Byzantine icon, of which uh, Theotokos or the Lady of Contact uh, are examples. The Byzantine icon... Uh, Monzaín will say um, is a polygraphy uh, uh, I'm sorry, the Byzantine icon, uh, Monzaín would say is a graphy without polygraphy It is a, a, an inscription without circumscription. Right? So, in a sense, that what she's saying is that the territory of the icon is uh, universal. The, in a sense, what's happening at uh, the Teotoko sanctuary uh, that Padre Marcelo uh, built, it, it's as if he's saying that the, the icon is not in the territory. The icon is the territory, right? There's no logics of containment there. Uh, it's not a logic of containment. It's a logic of contiguity, absolute contiguity between uh, space and the realities, the experiences that are taking, you know, place. But again, taking place implies containment. So that are placing, you know, that are there, happening, the very happenhood, you know, body builds right. <laughs> right? Like as if it were alive, right? Um, So it's as if the space is absolutely responsive to the realities Uh, unfolding there. You know, in the past, Padre Marcelo really took serious this project of creating even, you know, imagining that you would have a sanctuary with walls that would actually be uh, receptive to the amount of people that would be inside. So you could actually expand the walls like lungs, you know. And it's no wonder that charismatics, you know, have traditionally uh, performed in tents as, for, as kind of pneumatic architecture, not the least because of the connections between tents also and St. Paul, who was a tent maker, in opposition to Peter, right, who's the rock, right? So again, you can see here what we talked before about these tensions within the Catholic Church itself, you know, on, on, on that in turn can be articulated in terms of a tension between positionality and and movement, right? Or an architecture that is there and that contains its assembly or an architecture that is there and where the inside and outside can, uh, uh, you know, have a much more kind of uh, uh, porous uh, uh, relationship, right? Um, And so so the, the, the... that idea of the, the the and that in a way uh, space does not circumscribe uh, it, that that kind of explosion or, or or better implosion of the idea of of a, of a, of a boundary that it's there as in, in favor of more like an event that is is an inscription there but that does not have a, a kind of the limitation around it, right? This is really, um, I mean, Padre Marcelo has been consistent about that in his desire to perform on, in you know, on open air, to perform in football stadiums, in, you know, in in spaces that are, you know, just um, gigantic, really, you know, that can contain more and more and, and fulfill, you know, what, uh, you know, uh, Canetti would call the, the idea of the open crowd, right? That it's 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 like he, he he never could conceive a space that would have a kind of a limit of people, but it's this idea of this open-endedness in space um, that he you know he was very insistent about. And so graphée, right? Um, and rather than purigraphé. Um, and so in thus having no border, especially. And, you know, Padre Marcelo and, and the Charismatics and Theotokos, the Theotokos uh, uh, sanctuary, also refuses or resists to have borders temporally. So, in a sense, the icon that is territorial just states is in this long process of gestation, right? Because it's Mother Mary, you know, with supposedly pregnant of Jesus, but where Jesus becomes, in a way, the community. So this ongoing gestation as community through a womb, but a womb that is marked by a particular grammar, and this grammar has the hallmark, the temporal hallmark of a gerund, this idea of an ongoing gestation, you know, which in turn is very akin to temporalities of neoliberalism, right, with its open-ended logics, right? And this idea of the, you know, Foucault has this very interesting intervention that he says you don't ask a neoliberal if uh, if it's good or bad, but you ask how is it going? Right, it's this idea of this more kind of diagonal going through the world, you know, that it's uh, neither this, it goes back to that, it's both this and that, right? It's um, not either or. So, in sum, both time and space in the Theotokos Sanctuary, in that particular brutal, absolutely gigantic construction. Uh, it, is about the command to keep on building up, right, as part and parcel of this theology of the unfinished, right, Uh, that precisely requires people to keep on exercising a form of presence. It keeps on telling people, look, we are still going, we are still in this process of, um, you know, uh, gestation, you know, of, of this body, uh, uh, which is also a, a building, right? And, and, you know, it has going on, gone on for many, many years um, uh, now. And what you see now is this very strange combination of, on the one hand, very high-tech, like the stage is very high-tech, Right, but you can still see that you know around it very rough, uh, you know edges of the sanctuary in a kind of brutalist form. You know you still see machines and so on, really to signal you know that as much as you come there and you're going to experience this, uh, uh, you know very sophisticated communion of uh, technologies and, and bodies in performance, you will also uh, have an access to evidence, material evidence that this project is not yet finished, that we used, you know, and, and of course people come and they leave their their money and they feel that they are part of this bodybuilding, you know, not just through the practice of, of, of devotion and, uh, you know, of prayer, but actually, through the fact that they do and the fact that they go there, you know, that they add up to the construction of this ongoing building.
0: Absolutely. And this, this ongoing gestation, as you've put it, that it, it also comes through uh, this, this thread that runs through your book about this boundlessly middle space that people, uh, that people move and oscillate within. And and what, what strikes me is that, you know, there is this. It's, it's, I wouldn't, I don't know if it's a paradox really, but there's this, this, um, the fact that the, the political, economic, and imaginative structures, strictures of neoliberal uncertainty, how that at the same time produces this, this theological as well as neoliberal ethos of flexibility and movement. Um, for the Catholic Charismatics. And before we um, sort of come to a close, I was wondering if, you know, if you could just tell us about the this, um, because I suppose I should uh, preface preface this by saying that, you know, throughout your book, the loss of eschatology or the absence of an eschatological t loss is something that that is central for your interlocutors, the Catholic Charismatics, because you tell us that instead of being oriented towards some definite millenarian vision of the future, you tell us that the Catholic Charismatics they circulate within this boundlessly middle space. There's this oscillation between what's come before and the harsh, harsh uncertainties of what lies ahead in Brazil's in Brazil's um, theatres of neoliberalism. So could you tell us perhaps just, just a few words um, before we close about the relationship between this eschatology-less theology and the authoritarian neoliberal forms of governance mm, that we mm. see in contemporary Brazil today?
2: Right. Um, yeah, so this indeed connects to your last question, uh, well, and the ones before, but... Um, if the movement of building up, if this, you know, process, right, which is another term that we like to think it's a positive term, but it's very good also for neoliberal uh, temporalities, uh, is ongoing. So if this building up is ongoing and open-ended, uh Eschatology, in so much it posits a, a kind of horizon or, you know, to use Frank Kermode's expression, a sense of an end. It is uh, problematic for what charismatics rehearse is more like what I described is, uh, uh, I think you also mentioned it in your question, this blonde middle Um so perhaps one could talk about a I don't know, an eschaton of the middle. Uh, yet part of understanding these epistemologies of pneuma, of breeding, um, that you know we have been talking about here is to understand the very atmospheric transformations of uh, middleness. Uh, you know, and this connects to the to the to the to the parts in which so much about this project is, uh, you know, about understanding the role of atmospheres of a certain atmosphere, um, in in this, you know, in this in this religious phenomena. So such that, in a way, this middleness, when you think about air, because it's very strange to say air and middleness, because air is precisely what in a way, changes the logic of, of the interval or, or that which is in the middle. Air is like at once everywhere and nowhere in particular. And yet that middleness, therefore, becomes something more like the midst, to be in the midst of things, right, or a middle everywhere. Hence, the, you, you know, the the potentials of, 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 of air, you know, it's it's... Precisely in the ways and breathing, you know, precisely in the ways that it ties the universal and the particular in a very, uh, you know, powerful way. Thus, at the same time, charismatics inhabit this uh, midst or this particular middle uh, that is not just a space in between, but is something else. Um, and I've been trying to write about this, you know, le- the latest iteration was in a, in a piece I write, it's called State of Extremes, where I'm trying to conceptualize what is this middle, the, You know, even this extreme, extreme middle, <laughs> this extreme form of inhabiting middle. And uh, because precisely the, the charismatics, in a way, inhabit these myths in, in such an extreme form uh, that, you know, it, it it sounds like this odd, ox, you know, oxymoronic form of thinking middle and extreme, right? You would think extreme is that it it's relates to, th- uh, you know, the kind of uh, that which is opposed to a middle. But I'm saying that there is this intensity of the middle as such. So, again, some kind of gymnastics involved here and torsion uh, of... Um, now, what's relevant, I think, is how this structure is uh, similar to the mechanics of power that someone like Bolsonaro and his supporters adopt. I think, I mean, and I'm not the only one; it is uh, many others are uh, expressing this in excellent ways. And Bolsonaro and his team do not really have a a telos, which is why, you know, as we mentioned before, I mentioned before, he needs his enemies to interrupt and block his way, to hiccup his path. He doesn't want to go anywhere, particularly because he would know where to go. He simply wants to move, right? And to be very intense in that process of wanting to go but being stopped, right? You know, elsewhere I, I describe these. Um, Untoward logics, you know, untoward in the sense of non-toward, uh, non-teleological, non-tele-, as a kind of moonwalking, right? This this movement of like it looks like it's going, uh, gives the illusion of, of going forward, but it's actually going back. Um, and this is, you know, this is the these moves in a way define, you know. Uh, the kind of sovereign attitude of, you know, someone who is, you know, inhabiting this middleness in in a very intensive form, right? Which connects powerfully with uh, with what Benjamin wrote about the 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 Baroque, in fact. And so you see a Bolsonaro that buffets like a flag in the wind between. Contrasts is at once this neoliberal and authoritarian. He's at once a military and a clown. At once rigid, right, in his uh, toxic masculinity, and yet spineless, right. He's in a sense victim of his own aporias. Which is why, towards the end of the book, I finish with Kafka's Cossack dance as the one who will be buried by the frenetic moves of his members, of his own, uh, you know, dance, the, the, the movement of the legs, you know, the, the, the movement of the extremities. You know, Brodillard, as, as this interesting phrase that, you know, he starts It's this book, I forget the title now, I think it's something, you know, a title on, on the question of evil, Well, at least it has evil in the title. Um, I'm sorry, I forget the full title. But he writes, you know, like um, uh, an epigraph. He writes uh, in the beginning of the book: "Better live at the extremes than die at the extremities." Perhaps Bolsonaro living the extreme will involve dying through the extremities. You know, like uh, the way he uses constantly his his hand and his fingers. You know, to put. To, to make this symbol of the gun and so on. Uh, but we will have to see, um, you know, uh, and very soon, you know, as elections come, what will happen um, to Bolsonaro and all that is there now. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Oh, thank you so much, Maria Jose, for such, such a rich... Um, first of all for writing such a beautiful book that really can um, one can talk about it and discuss it to no end. Uh, But before we (laughs) before we wrap
2: up (laughs) today always comes back uh, to you. It's like your own
0: (laughs) No no it's it's so rich. Uh, But before we wrap up today's interview, just one final question. So what do you hope scholars working on? Charismatic Religion, will take from your book? And also, are there any sort of related or non-related projects that you're working on as sort of second or third projects? Uh,
2: Let's see. You know, that's really for people to say. Um, But I I guess two things. The first relates to, you know, to this the need to study groups that, you know, we do not necessarily sympathize with. There is still a conviction within the social sciences and anthropology that one ought to study groups that one feels militant about. Uh, But I think that it's because of a certain old assumption that we anthropologists are bringing something to the field, whereas in fact it's the opposite. We are taking, extracting knowledge from the field. You know, like I said, I too was going to study a movement that would provide me with the sense that I was on the right side of politics, you know, but a certain moral comfort in identity politics. But today I see how problematic that is, and perhaps even condescending, So that's one thing. The second thing, I guess, uh, you know, when I started to study uh, the charismatic movement, uh, the great straw man was secularization. And part of studying religion to defend it, uh, I mean, part of studying religion was to defend it um, from... Uh, secularized conceptions of the social, you know, to, 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 to say that religion, you know, has a right, it, religion is not only has not been displaced by secularization, you know, religion is uh, alive and kicking and it has the right to exist. Um, you know, earlier, this fact or this call or agenda prevented me from being perhaps more critically assertive about um about the uh, the charismatic movement. Um, but I now see that, in fact, uh, you know, the, the secularization project, uh, in fact, was never completely successful. Uh, so the very straw man that I thought was big and complete and successful there, in fact, uh, you know, had many flaws. And and now, you know, towards the end, I, I I understood that I I was studying a a religious mm-hmm. group that had its own politics, you know, and that I I could either agree or disagree with it, sympathize or not rather than constantly think that I have to kind of be on the side of religion because it had to be you know um, put in relation to this other thing that threatened religion which was secularization so so I guess this was an, an interesting um, reflection that I had uh, you know um, in it towards the you know the in the last years of completion of this project um, finally, I would say also that uh, you know because now with COVID and Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, and all the environmental toxicities that are going on, there's a lot of writings coming up, uh, and you know, in many ways, rightly so, to- talking about the kind of liberating potentials of of something like air and breathing. But, you know, again, uh, it's also interesting to see, you know, how actually these potentially liberating elements can actually be uh, co-opted and hijacked by, um, you know, other forces and, 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 and groups that uh, actually might take these very liberatory, liberatory potentials into more oppressive areas. Um, and so... You know that uh, one needs to pay attention to these kind of traffics that are going on politically uh, between the left and the right, and and this connects to my actually my my new project on Portugal, um, w- which is basically uh, about households and politics of governance of through very much through the idea of the household, um, but that links again to kinds of. Uh, logics of governance that are in place right now, um, you know, and very much since the the breakout of the financial crisis, and that, in a way, connects uh, these new forms of neoliberal power uh, in in unexpected ways with a a long uh, era of uh, dictatorship and fascism that was, uh, you know, ruling over Portugal for almost uh, 50 50 years before the revolution of 1974. So again, I'm I'm very much looking at intersections of neoliberalism and um, forms of authoritarianism that were once there, and how these, uh, far from being two distinctive realities, in fact, uh, may share some things in common and build on each other.
0: That is that is fascinating, and I'm certainly looking forward to following your work um, as, it, you. as it progresses. And thank you so much, Maria Jose, for such, you, a, such a lovely conversation. Yes. Um, yeah, and I
2: hope you have a good day. And you as well. Thank you so much for allowing me to rethink, uh, you know, through all these different ideas and for, for really – your fascinating questions you know just a, a kind of a tribute to my to my own <laughs> thinking thank you so much irene
0: oh my absolute pleasure i, I could not have enjoyed this interview more
2: <laughs> thank you thank, thank you, so you much. likewise <laughs>